You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome back to the MLB.com StatCast podcast. I'm your host, Mike Petriello, joined here by MLB.com national editor Matt Myers. We're off after a couple weeks. One of us had to be foolish enough to go have another child. That was me. We're back. Uh, We've got some things to talk about. This week, I actually found it really interesting that Ryan Braun is trying to change his swing. Ryan Braun's a guy who's had a ton of success, and I feel like there's some validity here. We're going to get into that. On the other hand, Victor Robles, who's this incredibly top-rated prospect, there's some concerning numbers um, that we've become aware of. We're going to dig into those. And then since we can't go a single show without talking about Bryce Harper, we're going to talk about how he may affect some pennant races. Um, First, Ryan Braun. Ryan Braun, I feel like, you know, obviously he's been through a lot, and, um, you know, maybe a lot of people aren't fans of him in the way they once were, but he's been around for a long time and he's never really had that, you know, poor production year, right? Like his most recent year, it's like league average-ish of a player, but it's been a bit of a decline. Slugging percentage of the last three years down from 538 to 487 to 469, weighted on base down from 378 to 347 to 330. He turns 35 in November. That's the kind of decline you'd expect, right? But there's a but here. He told Adam McAlvey, Brewers.com beat writer uh, in January that he'd been working with a private hitting coach this winter. Ooh, intrigue. And has been making changes to his swing for the first time ever. Call it the launch angle revolution or whatever, but he's trying to turn some of those hard hit outs into home runs. Those are Adam's words. And I'll dig into all the numbers, but first, are you buying? Um... I'm interested. I'm (laughs) curious. Um, You know, obviously Ryan Braun has... um, has fantastic bat-to-ball skills. He always has. Uh, if I may go, go on a brief tangent for a second. Please do. Um, I'll, if you, you indulge me with a, uh, a Ryan Braun story, you always know. I, I know Mike loves. Wait, is this going to be about you working at Baseball America? Yeah, I know when Mike loves when I tell, story, <laughs> when I tell stories about when I used to work at Baseball America. But in 2005, he'd just gotten drafted uh, out of Miami, and they sent him to the South Atlantic League. And they were that was the Brewers affiliate at the time. I don't even know what their affiliate is. was the West Virginia Power. And they came through Greensboro, which was near where Baseball America is in Durham. So I was like, oh, I'll go. This guy's like a big prospect. I will go and watch him. I'm kind of curious. And I got to Greensboro early. And I was in the – I was like in the, the clubhouse area. And there was like a batting cage underneath the tunnel. And I remember watching him go in to take BP in the tunnel. And I never heard a louder sound of the ball at the bat. I was like, oh, okay. Like now – I get this. Granted, it could have been the acoustics of the of the room, but even still compared to everyone else taking batting practice that day, it was like, well then, now I kind of get this, why this guy's kind of a big I, deal. I love that sound. I, the, the first time I really heard that sound, and he was already a star by then, so it's not like I was finding some prospect, uh, was Andrew McCutcheon in spring training in Bradenton, and this is like six or seven years ago, where even my wife stopped and turned around, and she's like, wow, that guy sounds a lot different than everybody else. Um, but back to Ryan Braun, I've, I thought this was kind of interesting because I learned something here, right? So he's working with Craig Wallenbrock, and he's the famed hitting coach uh, who turned around J.D. Martinez and all these other guys. I think everybody knows his name by now. But what I didn't know until I started looking this up this morning is that Ryan Braun had been working with him back in high school. Like, this is not a new thing for him. This is actually someone he's got a long relationship with, um, which I thought was really cool. And I feel like, you know, for the audience of this show, this probably doesn't need to be said, but maybe for the general baseball audience, it does. 
just trying to increase your launch angle does not in and of itself make you a better hitter. I feel like too many people have just sort of kind of taken that and said, oh, you know, hit the ball in the air and you're going to be a star. That's not really true. That's not really the point. It's all about just trying to get on plane with the pitch coming at you, and you got to be able to have that kind of power to do it. I wouldn't go to D. Gordon and recommend he starts hitting the ball in the air 70% of the time. We've all seen Major League 2. We know how that goes. Right. It's too simplistic. You hear that a lot. It's not about swinging up. But for Ryan Braun, I think it still works because his hard hit rate is still elite. Last year, his hard hit rate, that's percentage of balls at 95 miles an hour or more, was 49.5%. Call it 50%. That's actually the best for him of his four stack cast seasons, and it was 14th best of 332 qualifiers. That is elite. That's really, really good. So if you're going to take that as a starting point, I think that makes a lot of sense. And there's also something interesting with Braun that's kind of been going on. If you if you look at his fly ball percentage over the course of his career, last year he was at 28.4%. In 2008, he was at 44.1%. That seems like a thing. <laughs> <laughs> There's a big change. I mean, it's, it's sort of like gradually. He took like a, d- a jump down into the mid-30s around 2010, 2011, 2012. That was kind of his his kind of peak. I think 2012, was that his year he probably should have won MVP or did win MVP? 11. He, he beat out uh, Matt Kemp. Okay. Um, yeah, that's where it is. Um, so 2011, he was, you know, in 2012, he was around 38%. And then last year, he was 28 before, 28.4. The year before that, 32, 25, 31. So he's seemingly lost a little bit of launch angle if you yeah. will over the years so maybe he's like trying to rediscover something that that led to um those uh those extra home runs i mean over the last two years he's had a total of uh 37 home runs and you know almost 900 plate appearances so the 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 home run totals are down which is to be expected a little bit because of his age but maybe there's more at play he spoke to the associated press uh, and these are quotes from him he said if you want to take luck out of the equation just hit more balls over the fence if I'm able to do that, luck becomes less of a factor. We talked about it at length last year, that all the numbers suggested that based on my bad ball profile that I was unlucky. But I'm also hitting the ball, still hitting the ball hard and doing a lot of things well. I'm somewhat uncomfortable with, now this is me again, quote ended, that with players uh, who didn't perform as they wanted to, blaming it all on luck, you know, because it sort of uh, says, oh, it wasn't me, it was something else. Uh, but in Baron's case, I think there's maybe something to this. So last year, his batting average on balls in play was 274. It was the lowest of his career, down from his 327 career average. There were 173 right-handed batters who took 250 plate appearances, and he had the fourth largest gap between his expected weighted on base of 367 and his actual weighted on base of 330. That's a gap of 37 points, uh, fourth of 173 guys. That's a lot. And so I looked at some of the plays, you know, the the most high value batted balls that didn't turn into hits. And, you know, some of them actually were pretty good defensive plays. There's this one scorched liner that Javi Baez jumps like 20 feet in the air to catch uh, a couple nice outfield plays. But it's interesting to me because it seems like he knows, you know, that he still hits the ball hard. It seems like a slight change in his case could actually help things. And here is the most interesting part of this. This is also a quote from Adam McAlvey, our Brewers.com beat reporter, but this is from way back in September. This is a tweet from him on September 28th. He said, interesting from the postgame, after hitting into hard luck all year, Ryan Braun said, quote, he's trying to jo- join the launch angle revolution, unquote. He made some el- adjustments to elevate the baseball. So that says to me that this wasn't necessarily like an off-season planning thing, right? This was a thing that he'd maybe already been trying to do in September. I don't know if you noticed this, and you probably didn't, because if you were watching the Brewers in September, you were watching Christian Yellick destroying baseballs, right? In September, Ryan Braun hit 265, whatever, 375 on base, 588 slugging. That's a 395 weighted on base, his best month of the season. He had a 63% hard hit rate in September. 
the best of 345 hitters who had 25 batted balls that month, just ahead of Shohei Otani, for what it's worth. So we may have already seen this. I, I don't want to say I'm like fully buying in. I'm sort of buying into this. <laughs> <laughs> I'm certainly curious. I did. I certainly did not realize the uh, the September stat you mentioned. So I'm definitely curious to see uh, what Braun does does this year. Can we talk about the Brewers for a second? Well, I feel like the Brewers are constantly underrated, right? And if you look at, let's say, the steamer projections, they're, what, 79 and 83-ish? Yeah, I think kind right? of underrated is a, yeah. is, a, is a bit of an understatement. <laughs> right now, if you, if you go to Fangraphs and look at the steamer, steamer, you know, prominent projection system that, that um, is powering these projections, um, ML Central tightly, tightly bunched together with the Cubs at 88 wins winning the division, followed by the Cardinals at 86, the Reds at 82, the Pirates at 80, and in the cellar... At 79 wins, the Brewers. I'm not buying it. And uh, listen, we speak about Steamer with all love because they do a great job, and we're friends with Jared, who does the projections. Um, Cubs at the top makes sense. Cardinals slightly behind. That makes sense. I got to have the Brewers up there in third. I, I know everyone's kind of in love with the Reds because they've been making moves when nobody else has been making moves, and good on them for doing so. I still don't think they're actually that good. Like, Pirates and Reds in fourth and fifth, that's kind of where that still lands for me. Yeah, I, I love the idea of the Reds pulling the trigger on a Real Muto deal. Sure. I think it makes a lot of sense. They've got like 87 young third basemen. Um, the, so they could certainly trade one of those guys because they have Suarez established and they still have Senzel and Jonathan India. So they, yeah, they yeah. Could start, Do it. start from there. Real Muto would actually move the needle for them in like a meaningful way. At this point, like they've made all these moves to win this year. Like seems like maybe they should just kind of uh, like... It seems to me right now that the Reds are going to be the most interesting seller in July, but <laughs> maybe that's just where I am. But why do, you, why do you think the Brewers... What do you think that Steamer might be missing about the Brewers? Well, I think the number one thing is that nobody believes in their rotation, and I think that that's not necessarily unfair. Obviously, Jimmy Nelson got hurt and missed all of last year, and you know you hope he can come back and be awesome, but, but who knows? Um, and then, you know, there's lots of guys in the rotation who are talented but aren't necessarily proven, like Woodruff and Corbin Burns and Anderson and Zach Davies. Those are all kind of guys like you'd like to have, but you don't really want any of them uh, fronting the rotation. It's here I'll point out I can never, ever remember the difference between Juan Nicasio and Julius Chassin. I think it's Chassin who's with the, the Brewers right now, but he had a really good year last year. Like Javi Guerra, uh, no, sorry, Junior Guerra is still there. Um, it's, your your it's, old school Dodger bias. Yeah, well, that's, that's, hey, we had James Loney news today. He's trying to come back as a two way player. Um, but anyway, I don't think it's unfair uh, that you look at the Brewers rotation and you say, you know, that's not necessarily a strength, but I also think the projection systems have a bit of a tough time with teams, you know, like the A's, like the Rays, like the Brewers that heavily rely on their bullpens, right? Like Josh Hader was unbelievable. You know, Jeremy Jeffers was really good last year. They've got a lot of good relievers, and I think that's partly, partially why the uh, the projections underrate them. I'm also not sure they give enough credit for what a big upgrade it was to get Yasmani Grandal. Like his framing, obviously we know that's a huge strength. I think he's going to improve all the pitchers. It's true they don't really have a second baseman, and that concerns me a little bit. It's also true that Arcia had a really bad year at shortstop. Is better in the second half, sure. I don't really trust him, but they could use uh, a second baseman, or I guess if you want to sign the third baseman and move Shaw over, like whatever. Um, it still feels like they need another piece or three. Yeah, I mean, looking at their depth chart projections right now, even Jesus Aguilar, who had a great year last year, the projection is pretty modest. You know. You know, 242, 317, 454, 1.3 war. Second base, Hernan Perez, 0.3 war. Well, they signed Sp- Corey Spangenberg, so. <laughs> well, they asked that Spangenberg is also projected for yeah. 0.3 war. RC, exactly. I think people, RC was very good in the postseason in particular. So maybe people, and he was a big prospect as recently as like two years ago. So I think people are kind of like, well, you know, the Brewers, you know, RC is, you know, he's living up to his potential. But 
yeah, he's been a pretty bad hitter for most of his career. So, yeah, you could argue first, second, and third is a bit of a question. I'm, I'm just trying to like kind of, kind of talk through some of where the holes might actually be. Um, bringing back Moustakis and going to the Moustakis-Shaw kind of second, third thing might work. I, yeah, I know what I'm in favor of that. I'm I'm generally the low man of Mike Moustakis. Me, uh, I, I, may, I may be challenging you for <laughs> low man of Mike Moustakis. I, I think he's average, and that's fine. Um, but I do think in the Brewers' case, if you think Shaw can handle second, and he seemed okay at it last year, uh, you know, Moustakis, as an average player, that's an upgrade. And they're so flexible, you don't need to do it every day. You know, maybe you don't want Moustakis facing lefties or whatever. You know, Perez can play all over the place. Um, I still think they need to do something in the infield and add one more starting pitcher. You know, like it'd be Keuchel, I guess, would make sense, but that's probably not what they're going to do. It feels like they should be able to add some kind of depth. And in, in this division, like this isn't the Dodgers or the Indians where you're like, okay, this team is like 10 games better than anybody else. Every game matters in this division. Like I, even if I'm if I'm saying the projections are underrating them, which I think they are, they're not the favorites. You yeah, know? no, I think I, I think I saw you know another like you know somewhat prominent projection system that the Clay Davenport put out his projections, and I think he had um so he used to do the projections at Baseball Prospectus. Um, I think it, he has every team in the NL Central within five games of each other. I think that's too tight. I really do think the Cubs are much better than let's say the Pirates, but that probably makes a little more sense. I think. I mean, the, the Central to me is probably the most interesting division in all of baseball. I know the NL East is pretty fun too. You know, four of those teams are going to be really good. But, you know, even like, like I said, the Reds, I don't think they're going to be great, but they're going to be so much fun to watch this year. Like I'm definitely going to watch more Reds baseball than I did last year. Yeah, I mean, the, the Davenport projections are even more, I'm looking at them now, they have St. Louis at 85, Cubs at 84, and the Reds at 84, and the Brewers at 82. Um, I'm just... Maybe, I, we I got, maybe we got sucked in last year. Um, the Reds will certainly be fascinating. The Brewers will again be fascinating. It's 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 the deepest division in baseball. People talk about the NL East, but they obviously the Marlins are kind of, you know, this is the the NL Central is the one division that doesn't have like a rebuilding team. Right, exactly right. Um, let's go to the NL East real quick because uh, Victor Robles is probably going to play a big role in Washington. Let's assume Harper doesn't go back there. Who knows at this point, right? But if he does not return to Washington, the outfield will be Juan Soto, who is awesome. Uh, Adam Eaton, who has obviously been good, but, you know, rarely healthy, and Victor Robles. And I think people sort of forget he was supposed to be Juan Soto last year. Like, he was the guy who was up before Soto, uh, and then he hurt his arm, uh, elbow, I like think. Like a weird a, injury, like diving, diving for pitch. Yeah. yeah. Missed, like, three months, uh, and he, he came back, and, you know, only 66 played appearances, but played pretty well. 288, 348, and 525. That's a 131 weighted runs created plus. It's very good. Turns 22 in May, still very young. 95th percentile sprint speed. He can really fly uh, 29.3 feet per second where the league average is 27. The very good outfielder. Like the skills are all there. Uh, he is like, I don't know, fourth overall on our MLB pipeline top 100, I think somewhere up in that range. Really, really good. But something interesting came up. We like to look at hard hit rates a lot. We just talked about it in terms of Ryan Braun. You know, it's like the best thing you can do as a hitter when you make contact is to hit the ball hard. Well, he only had a 23% hard hit rate in 2018, the league average was about 36%. The best guys like Aaron Judge are up in, you know, 53, 54%. 23% is really low. Uh, and it was the same 23% if you combine his limited looks in 2017, 2018. Now, we're only talking about 67 batted balls from a young guy. I understand. These are not huge samples, and he's clearly got a lot of skills. But it's interesting because those numbers are so, so low. There were 633 hitters who had fi uh, 50 batted balls across the last two years. That 23% is 524th, or the 13th percentile. Similar names around him. Nori Aoki, Stuart Turner, who I legitimately don't know who that is, Jose Reyes, Miguel Rojas, Eric Sogard. I mean, these are not the names that you want. I couldn't find anybody below him 
uh, who is somebody you would consider to be a high-quality major league hitter. And I thought, okay, you know, young guy, not a big sample, got hurt, whatever. I looked at the Fangraphs Nationals prospect report uh, from December, and the write-up said, Robles has middling bat speed and doesn't generate huge exit velocity. Well, that plays. But he has above-average hand-eye coordination, back control, and pitch recognition, and a gap-to-gap approach that suits his speed. He'll slug on paper. By turning the line drives, he slugs into the gaps into extra bases. Well, that makes a lot of sense to me. So he'll probably out-slug what you think just because he's so speed. Uh, but it's interesting. You know, he just had 110 plate appearances in the Dominican Winter League, and he slugged 316. I don't want to put too much emphasis on those kind of numbers. Does this concern you at all about his prospect profile? A little? I th- somewhere between a little and a lot, <laughs> I got to say. Like, it, it definitely changes, you know, how I, how, I, how I view him, at least in the short term. Because I think, like, it's pretty clear that, like, you know, we, we've talked, you know, hard hit rate isn't, it's still a small sample. You know, it, it stabilizes relatively quickly. And we have enough now to sort of feel like, okay, this is who he is. Um, and as you've, you've kind of shown, like, it's kind of hard to be an impact offensive player when you hit the ball like that. I mean, people have done it. I'm sure like Ichiro at his peak was not hitting the ball that hard, but like that's, you know, otherworldly hit tool. Well, yeah, the only guy I could find in that range who had been a decent hitter over the last two years is Malik Smith, right, who also has elite speed. Um, So I'm not saying it's not possible. It's just, it's hard. Like you have to make really good contact, which, you know, as the report said, he's got really good uh, pitch recognition and back control, and that's fantastic. But I, I feel like I don't think this makes him a non-prospect or a bad player or certainly anything like that. I just think it maybe limits his ceiling. You know, the, the most home runs he's ever hit in a in a season is 10. And and so I don't think we're looking at a guy who's going to, you know, bulk up to 25, 30 home runs here. You know, it's it's more of like very good defense in center field, elite speed, uh, maybe good strikeout and walk and just limited power. So maybe that makes him more of a good player, not a great one. Maybe more of like a three-win player, not a six-win player. Yeah, when looking at that profile, there are two names that actually come to mind for me. Um, one of which is a, a current name, um, Jose Peraza, who was kind of a big prospect, but never hit for power in the minors. And then last year actually kind of broke out a little bit, broke out and hit 14 home runs. And people are like, okay, he's finally kind of figured it out. You know, Pipeline had him as the number 24 prospect at the end of the 2015 season. Um, so not quite as highly rated as Robles, but, you know, pretty, you know, an elite prospect. But then you can look at his his expected stats and you see like, well, maybe it's a little bit of a mirage, right? Jose Peraza went and looked, uh, expected weight on base last year of 297. So kind of give me a little pause. But if you're looking at kind of upside – the name that I would think that actually makes a lot of sense is one you just referenced is Jose Reyes. Jose Reyes, like, we didn't have exit velocity for when he was, like, at his peak, but you go look at his minor league numbers, and, you know, he never hit in the minors. He hit, he peaked at eight homers, but, you know, he would put up good slugging percentages because he would get a lot of doubles and triples. So, you know, he kind of hit, you know, turn those balls in the gap into extra bases. So, I could see, then again, you know, Reyes eventually did kind of put out a little more power, and I think he peaked at 19 homers well, in the majors. You have his stats in front of you. What was his, like, the last year he had with the Mets before he went and signed that deal with Miami, right? Was that his best year? Like, what what did his numbers look like that, that year? Um, his best, let me, uh, it's probably his best by, I'm, I'm actually on his, uh, what am I looking at now? His best year might have actually been, like, in 2008 with the Mets. Um, no, you're right, 2011, 337, 384, 493, seven home runs. Um, uh, that, that an incredibly year. valuable player, obviously. Yes, yeah. incredibly valuable player, <laughs> with, but like, with a good defense. Yeah, and, and you know he had like a five year peak where he like had like a, you know, almost like you know Hall of Fame level like peak. But so you know I think that like from the offensive profile, you kind of if you're thinking optimistically now that we have this information, I think that that maybe um 
that's sort of what I would see from see from Robles. Which, if he turns into that, the Nationals would be thrilled. super happy. Yes, yeah. yeah it's to really, be clear, it's I think it's less of a red flag and more of just like a oh, that's interesting. I didn't realize that was a thing about him, and that's something I will watch closely uh, this upcoming year. We have to talk about Bryce Harper. I'm kind of sick of talking about Bryce Harper, as I imagine everybody else is. But I thought that Andrew Simon wrote a pretty interesting piece on our site the other day. He went uh, and he looked at both Harper and Machado, but we'll focus on Harper here. And he looked at all of the different pennant races for the teams that they maybe uh, potentially could land in and looked at the projections and said, well, how much of an impact would this have on any pennant race? So, for example, Harper is projected at Steamer to be a five-win player this year uh, among the game's top dozen position players he's really good as people shouldn't need to be reminded and if you look at the teams that have been rumored it's kind of fun to see well what would the impact actually be there so for example the nationals are projected to be six wins ahead of the mets without harper without harper right so all these are without harper uh, harper's impact would be about you know three additional wins over eaton or robles however that would shake out uh that means that it wouldn't really change things that much for the nationals these are projections obviously you know you got to account for risk and real world things i mean it, it, would t- it would basically take it from within like one standard deviation to like essentially like nats are like unheard of favorite. I, I saw i can't remember who it was uh, but i saw someone say that it would take the nationals from being the favorite to being one of the super teams like one of the american league teams which i think actually makes a lot of sense uh the padres projected to be 17 games behind the dodgers tied with san francisco for last harper impact would be you know plus four or five wins over they have so many outfielders i like fran Reyes. i like franchi cordero obviously i like all those guys many more go um it wouldn't make much of a difference in the issues pennant race. Now, this is all going to sound negative, but uh, I promise you when we get to the end of this, it's not going to be. And also, to be clear, for the Padres, if you sign him, it's kind of looking right ahead. It's, the, like, the, it's like we want to get him for a few years, knowing that we have a ton of prospects. They have 10 top 100 the, prospects this year. The, you know, like when we've seen the past, teams that sort of sign a big free agent maybe a year or two before, the, like when the Nats signed Jason Worth, well, right. when the Nats signed Carlos Beltran, like there may be a year early knowing that like the, the, That's what the was wave was say. coming. The, the best way to improve a bad team is to add good players. Yes. Right? That's absolutely what I'm trying to get at here. Um, a team that would actually have a really big impact is the team he's most rumored to go to, the Phillies. Uh, they are 12th, or excuse me, 12 games projected behind the Nationals, fourth in the NL East, but the NL East is pretty well bunched together. So Harper's impact would be plus four wins over, you know, Nick Williams or Herrera or Quinn, whoever that would work itself out. Well, that gets them nearly tied for second place in the National League East. That's right in the wild card race. I think, you know, the Phillies have done a good job improving themselves. I still don't think they're actually that great yet. There's a lot of holes in that team. I like the bullpen. I like the rotation. Lineup I'm not so sure about. Harper would be uh, a huge impact there. The White Sox, kind of the same thing as the Padres. They are projected for 23 games behind Cleveland. It's the same idea. It's, it's not getting you in the playoffs this year, but it's helping you build the base for years. And, and in the AL Central, I could argue that, like, there's a lot more impetus to do it because, like, that division kind of, the way those teams sort of operate, there's, a, it's like that division has more turnover than any, like, every team almost takes turns being like, you know, the Indians have been it before it was the Royals, the Twins have had their time, the White Sox have had their time. Like, it kind of goes through cycles and the White Sox, you know, the Indians are going to come up soon to sort of maybe the end of like this current cycle with this core. And there's going to be an opportunity for, you know, the white Sox and maybe the twins to kind of jump in there. Uh, the Dodgers are obviously always rumored. They're projected to be 11 games ahead of the Rockies. I don't really see much of an argument there. I don't, I don't think the Rockies have improved themselves this winter. Um, the Dodgers would add, you know, two or three wins uh, over, you know, Alex Verdugo, I guess, but maybe less if Muncy's playing first and Bellinger's in right field. Like he, he would not put them over the top. I already think they are over the top. I angered so many Cardinals fans on Twitter today. It was great. It's like my favorite pastime. So the Cardinals are like are projected to be two games behind the Cubs. 
and Harper's impact would be plus four over Jose Martinez. We love Jose Martinez on this show. That's actually a big deal. Like that is a move they should totally make. Uh, the way I angered Cardinals fans is the impression I've gotten is that they're not actually happy with the Paul Goldschmidt sign. I think that's the best deal any team's made all winter was trading for Paul Goldschmidt, who's awesome. Um, but they're not satisfied because they haven't also continued to go get Bryce Harper, which I understand they should get Bryce Harper. I don't think any team needs more, you know, the extra wins than a team in the NL Central right now. So that makes total sense. Um, you know, some other teams, the Mets, the Twins, the Yankees, the Cubs. I don't think any of those teams are actually in. There's arguments to be made for all of them. The Twins would be an amazing landing spot. I don't actually see that happening. Well, did you see that, like, Aaron Judge was asked about it? And yes. And he was like, I would move positions for Bryce Harper, which is kind of odd because, like, the Yankees, as we've talked about on the show, they could sign Harper, and they wouldn't need to move anyone to center field. They could just cycle yeah. uh, Judge, Stanton, and Harper between DH and the corners. Like, it's right. like, Aaron, you wouldn't need to move, but I guess he's just trying to say, like, hey— Maybe we should go yeah, get this guy. Cut Jacoby Ellsbury. Like, it's fine. It doesn't matter. Um, now, I, you know, I know people have a hard time with saying, like, oh, these teams are in last place. Why are they bothering to sign these guys? As we said, importing talent is the best way to get better. But I thought it was interesting. You think about some of the, uh, you know, truly wretched teams of the 21st century. The 119 lost 2003 Tigers were in the World Series in three years. The 111 lost 2013 Astros were in the American League wildcard in two years. Like, it is possible to improve, you got to start somewhere. And mind you, after that 2003 season, the Tigers went out and signed Yvonne Rodriguez to a yes. huge free agent deal, which was considered like kind of crazy at the time. It was like, what is this team doing signing signing a big free agent? And lo and behold, you know, three years later, they became like the class of that division for like a decade, basically. So it's um, it's uh, I, I mean, I do think the a big problem here is like it's hard probably for owners to say, well, these guys. I'm going to drop so much money on them and they're not going to put me into the playoffs or really like meaningfully improve my chances of winning a ring. Not for all the teams, like the Phillies, the Cardinals, for sure. And I I just, I don't know that that's fair, but that's probably the issue they're running into in some way. Like, I feel like a lot of this is just, it's going to have to change in years to come because I don't think that this system is working for everybody anymore. The one thing, other thing I was saying about Harper, and, you know, I, I started thinking about him recently because of a piece that uh, Joe Sheehan wrote in his newsletter sort of about like rethinking him. And it's like, you know, we sort of took for granted coming into this offseason that this guy was a generational free agent. You know, this guy, we, we think of his 2015 season, which is like, you know, one of the best seasons we've seen. Ever. Yeah, ever. Um, and he had all the hype coming up. And is you know, generally when he's been healthy, has played well, but been streaky uh, at times. And, you know, Sheehan's point is kind of like, well, maybe he's not as good as we think he is. And if you look at his last three years – and I'm using – I'm not trying to be, like, arbitrary endpoints. I usually use three years, my, the yep. previous three years when when evaluating a player. He hasn't been that great in total. If you go back the last three years, I compared him to other, like, prominent guys who hit free agency at a young age. Um, Barry Bonds in the in three years before he hit free agency combined for 26.8 war. Um, two years – in two of those years, he won MVP. In the third one, he should have. He lost to Terry Pendleton and one of the other. I, I saw this note, and I was trying to remember which one you were talking about. Uh, oh, it was definitely Terry Pendleton. Um, A-Rod – so Bob was entering his age 28 season. Um, A-Rod was entering his age 25 season, had put up 23.6 war um, in the previous three years. Machado has put up uh, 16.1 war in the previous three years. He's been pretty consistent. Harper's at 7.5. This is baseball reference war. Yeah, I, so I, would, I will take the over on that because I think they unfairly crush his defense. They had him as a one-win player last year, which nobody really believes. I think if Fangraphs use three and a half wins, um, I think your point stands though. Like he hasn't, he hasn't exactly like come into this, you know, all guns blazing like, for example, Bonds did. And like I, you know, do I, do I, you know, if I said over under on twelve war the next three years for Harper, I'd take the over. Yes. Over under on fifteen war the next three years. Over. Eighteen. 
Uh, push. <laughs> <laughs> so, but like, I mean, you know, there's definitely like it. It would be it's not it's not that hard to imagine a situation where if you were um, negotiating a deal with them, like imagine if, if Harper was like at arbitration this year. Like, there's a lot of arguments you could make that could be like, this guy's not that good. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's there's there's it's not that hard to, to create to frame an argument where you say like he's not as good as we you say he is. 2015 is actually kind of a long time time ago. I believe in him. I think that he is a superstar. Yeah, I'm excited to see what he will do for the next. To be clear, I want to make that clear. But you can reframe the conversation around Harper to make him look like a very different player. Machado, on the other hand, has been kind of pretty consistent. You kind of you, what you see is what you get. You know, there's some questions about his defense at shortstop versus third base, but the hitting's been pretty consistent. And career best year. This yeah, year. I think you, you kind of know. You, you feel a little bit better about what you're getting with him. He plays. You know, you knock him for not hustling, but. Guy plays 155 games every year, yeah. whereas Harper seems to get you know end up hurting himself, you know, running out of ground or something. So Machado has taken the most plate appearances of any player over the last four years, and I know it was a real bad look in October. Like I can't talk around that, uh, but he comes to the plate every day. It's I mean, it reminds it's very similar to the old conversations about Robinson Cano, where Yankees fans used to say that he didn't write things out, but guy played 155 games every year and was wild, you know, incredibly need, consistent. I don't need him blown out a wheel trying to beat out a grounder. You know, that's that's not what he's there for. Um, I think you're right. I, I think it's just it's really interesting. Here we are, I don't know, a million months in the free agency, and there are still kind of new ways to talk around how this is all happening. And I think someone's going to get Harper, and I think they're going to be really happy with it because I think he's a better defender than he showed. And I think after all this, he's going to be unbelievably motivated. You know, he's going to go out. He does this every April, by the way. He's going to hit 75 home runs in the first three weeks. Well, I think, I think that, and honestly, I think that's part of why some some of his um, weird kind of like uneven seasons get overlooked a little bit is that because he always starts strong. Yeah. So it's like, oh, Harper's back. Like, <laughs> right. then May will come and it's... And he's like, he's oh, like, he's only good, <laughs> not amazing. Uh, so it's... Uh, I'm sort of. I, I still think that we've talked about this. I still think he'll end up back on the Nats and Machado on the Phillies. I'm kind of hoping one of them ends up on the White Sox, just because it's more interesting that way. Uh, I changed my mind. I used to think that I actually do think Harper will go to the Phillies at this point, and Machado will go to. Uh, yeah, the White Sox. Sure, why not? All of his family is there. Padres, come on, <laughs> Padres. They should totally do it. Um, I guess we'll find out hopefully soon. Uh, I do feel like once one of these guys gets off the board, so many dominoes will start falling. You know, like we haven't even talked about Kimbrell or, or Keuchel or any of these guys. Adam Jones is out there. Nice I mean, guy in a one-year deal. I think people know that there's still this belief that the Phillies are prepared to spend. So it's almost like I don't want to – some of these players are like, I don't want to make a call until I know where the Phillies stand. The Phillies probably are like, well, we don't want to make a deal until – We've kind of like another big deal until yeah. we've kind of locked up Machado if, or Harper. If if one of these guys signs uh, first somewhere that's not Philadelphia, right? The Phillies are going to go nuts trying to get the other guy. Like they'll burn the city down if they don't get either one, right? That's, I think that's and I think that's part of what some of the posturing is is sort of you know these these you know their their agents who are kind of have a little rivalry, Lozano and and Boris. And Boris I believe that. For know sure. that like whoever signs first can basically go take it to the Phillies and like <laughs> probably uh, maybe I do believe that's an underrated aspect of all this is that whole relationship I, I look forward to seeing that part of the next 30 for 30 in uh, 10 years or so uh, that's our show for this week this is the MLB.com StatCast podcast thanks for listening hey Rob Bradford here you guys know I'm always up for a good MVP story and one of the best 
stories is Wasabi Technology. Wasabi is the world's hottest cloud storage company, and it's become the go-to provider for professional and collegiate sports teams, including 20 major league baseball teams like the Red Sox and NHL teams like the Bruins and Vancouver Canucks. Even the Liverpool Football Club is getting in on the Wasabi action. So why is Wasabi the MVP? Well, Wasabi was purpose-built to free businesses from skyrocketing storage costs and unpredictable transaction fees that the Amazons of the world are charging. In fact, Wasabi is up to 80% less than those hyperscalers and doesn't charge a cent for businesses to access their data from Wasabi's AI-enabled intelligent media storage, Wasabi Air, to the industry's only cloud storage service with triple protection against cyber criminals, data deletion, and ransomware. Wasabi's taking the lead in driving innovation in data storage and helping sports teams to unleash the power of their data. Wasabi, another Boston-based championship team. 